If you're a universalist, you care about everybody's human rights. I heard last week from the the State Department here, the word apartheid is not acceptable. But if you've spent five minutes in the West Bank, you see that this is a legal term, and it simply means two different uh, systems of law for two different peoples. People are being canceled. Big exhibit of a South African Jewish artist was just canceled. A prize given to a Black British German writer was just withdrawn because she once signed a letter in support of Palestine. Welcome to episode 180 of the Refuse Fascism podcast, a podcast brought to you by volunteers with Refuse Fascism. I'm Sam Goldman, one of those volunteers and host of the show. Refuse Fascism exposes, analyzes, and stands against the very real danger and threat of fascism coming to power in the United States. In today's episode, we're sharing an interview with Dr. Susan Neiman. She's a philosopher, author, and director of the Einstein Forum. On our show, we are so proud to bring you a wide array of guests that we select for their expertise and knowledge on a topic, sometimes their activism. We do not necessarily share the same analysis on all topics as our guests, just as my opinions are my own, likewise, for our guests. Thanks to everyone who goes the extra step and rates and reviews the show on Apple Podcasts, shares and comments on social media or YouTube. It really helps us reach more listeners, and we, of course, read everyone. After listening to today's show, please help us reach more people who want to refuse fascism by writing a review and dropping five stars wherever you listen to your pods. Tell the good people out there in podcast land why you listen and they should too. Encourage your friends and family who listen to do the same. Subscribe, follow so you never miss an episode. And of course, continue all that sharing and commenting on social media. Special thanks to our patrons. Shout out to those who joined Coco, Paul, and myself for our patron sustainer only Ask Us Anything Zoom chat this past Tuesday. It was so great to be with you and help field your thoughtful questions and comments. We'll be airing some excerpts of that chat soon. And if you want to join us for future virtual events, sign up to support the pod for as little as $2 a month over at patreon.com slash refusefascism. Before we get into the interview, we have to talk about where we are right now in relation to the fascist threat. We aren't going to tell you about how much of a failure DeSantis was at his debate with Newsom or talk about how Haley got money from the Coke Network. Because on this show, we ground ourselves in reality. And the overwhelming yes, frightening yes, reality is Trump's the GOP nominee pending something absolutely major happening. And he has a real shot at getting back into power. If you want to be fed delusions, listen elsewhere. The fascist movement is working to get Trump back in power by hook or by crook. No means off limits. Just listen to Trump at a rally yesterday preparing his troops, echoing what he said in 2020. Evidence we have so, and everybody knows it and they know it. You know, the one thing they don't want to talk about is the election. They don't want to talk because... They're guilty as hell. They cheated like hell. They know it. And you'll never find out all the ways. But we don't need all the ways because, you know, it was, I think, 22,000 votes separated it. And we have millions and millions of votes. It's a very sad thing. So the most important part of what's coming up is to guard the vote. And you should go into Detroit and you should go into Philadelphia and you should go into some of these places, Atlanta, and you should go into some of these places. And we got to watch those votes when they come in. When they're being, you know, uh, shoved around in wheelbarrows and dumped on the floor and everyone's saying, what's going on? We're like a third world nation, a third world nation. And we can't let it happen. Let's be perfectly clear. He is telling his gun to the teeth, rabid Nazi base, which last time attempted a coup and stormed the Capitol, to go armed to swing states to stop black folks from voting and who the fascist GOP and Trump himself do not see as full human beings to stop people from voting. Yes, that is what he is advocating. He is showing you, and so too is the Republic Fascist Party, that they will suppress votes, that they are preparing in advance to call legal voting as quote-unquote fraud, that they are mobilizing now 
months in advance to unleash fascist thugs to intimidate and attack people who oppose Trump. On a side note, we want to let folks know that we will be covering the gutting of what is left of the Voting Rights Act, see the recent decision from the Eighth Circuit, which will likely be appealed to the Supreme Court, and we'll be covering that in future episodes. So stay tuned. So how is it that we are sleepwalking toward fascist takeover? Mass normalization, especially by the mainstream media, but also by the Democratic Party, especially as it relates to the wholesale dismissal that someone under dozens of indictments would try to win back office so he could direct the Department of Justice to dismiss charges against him. Except, isn't that totally what a fascist would do? Let's look at Trump's general legal strategy on these cases, the maraud of cases, if you will. First, to claim immunity from any post-presidential accountability for his actions as president. And the next one, this one's key, to delay the proceedings until he wins the election and then dismisses the cases. Yes, this is their plan. And not only do the Democrats continue to refuse to call out this as thoroughly fascist, Trump as a fascist, the Republican Party as fascist, and oppose that fascism on that basis, but more importantly right now, the only solution they are advocating for is for folks to vote, as if this will be some regular election where normal rules apply. After a Trump term, after a coup that only continues, the Democratic Party are hellbent on relying on mechanisms and institutions that the Republic Fascist Party has either taken over, made void, or doesn't give two fucks about abiding to. To get into this landscape more, I'm going to quote heavily from an op-ed titled, quote, a Trump dictatorship is increasingly inevitable. We should stop pretending, which was published November 30th in the Washington Post. It's by their editor-at-large, neocon Robert Kagan. The op-ed has many assumptions that are laughable, along with gross anti-communism. And the piece poses real questions on what the solution Kagan is advocating for. But the basic thesis of the piece, that we need to stop pretending that a Trump return can't happen, that it's a real threat, is spot on. I'll likely be talking about this op-ed in future episodes, but I want to share some quotes from it today and folks can go read it and share with me their thoughts later. Quote, such hopeful speculation has allowed us to drift along passively, conducting business as usual, taking no dramatic action to change course in the hope and expectation that something will happen. Like people on a riverboat, we have long known there is a waterfall ahead, but assume we will somehow find our way to shore before we go over the edge. But now the actions required to get us to shore are looking harder and harder, if not downright impossible, end quote. Kagan goes on to say, quote, barring some miracle, Trump will soon be the presumptive Republican nominee for president. When that happens, there will be a swift and dramatic shift in the political power dynamic in his favor, end quote. In reference to the litany of indictments, Kagan points out, quote, Trump intends to use the trial to boost his candidacy and discredit the American justice system as corrupt, and the media outlets serving their own interests will help him do it, end quote. He goes further to analyze this situation, quote, Trump will not be contained by the courts or the rule of law. On the contrary, he is going to use the trials to display his power. That's why he wants them televised. Trump's power comes from his following, not from the institutions of American government, and his devoted voters love him precisely because he crosses lines and ignores the old boundaries. They feel empowered by it, and that in turn empowers him. Even before the trials begin, he is toying with the judges, forcing them to try to muzzle him, defying their orders. He is a bit like King Kong, testing the chains on his arms, sensing that he can break free whenever he chooses." End quote. He adds, importantly, quote, a court system that could not control Trump as a private individual is not going to control him better when he is president of the United States and appointing his own attorney general and all the other top officials at the Justice Department. Think of the power of a man who gets himself elected president, despite indictments, courtroom appearances, and perhaps even conviction. Would he even obey a directive of the Supreme Court? Or would he instead ask how many armored divisions the Chief Justice has, end quote. A link to the piece is in the show notes, and I'll likely talk more about it in a future episode. And while the ruling powers in this country, the Democrats and Republicans, are bitterly divided on many things, 
there is something that they're fully in unity on, and it's the topic of today's episode, aggressively and forcefully backing Israel. We just recently learned that they had sent 2,000 bunker buster bombs, which are ground penetration munitions, along with other types of bombs and artillery shells. This is on top of billions in aid. This furthers the hollow claim to limit civilian casualties. I've said it before, there is no neutral to ethnic cleansing, to genocide. And so my interview with Professor Neiman is really worth listening, no matter what your thoughts right now are on this topic. This interview took place during the week Israel paused its genocidal assault against the Palestinian people in Gaza. This pause, which I need to know did result in the return of some of the hostages, did not, as Revcom.us wrote, quote, change the horror of the conditions in Gaza, end quote. It didn't stop the ethnic cleansing in the West Bank, where Hamas doesn't hold power. It didn't undo almost two months of the people of Gaza going without basic needs like water, food, medicine, fuel. It didn't change the fact that dozens of hospitals have been destroyed, those that are left incapable of caring for people properly. It did not bring back the approximately 6,150 children who have been slaughtered by the Israeli military. And it certainly did not stop the billions in military aid from the U.S. It is in the name of humanity that we not turn a blind eye to the thousands of women and children whose bodies continue to pile up, that we not be silent as our Palestinian siblings face the onslaught of the world's fourth strongest military, a military which possesses 200 nuclear weapons. It is our responsibility to speak out as Israel, enabled by the United States, carries out the slaughter of as many Palestinians as possible and eliminates any dissent so that it can further lock down the open-air concentration camp that is Gaza. Speaking personally, not on behalf of Refuse Fashlam, Israel is a colonial settler state imposed on the region of the Middle East. The cost of so much suffering for the people of Palestine and the people of the region more broadly It is only possible because of imperialism. And it acts not only in its own interests, but as an instrument for U.S. imperialism. But even if you don't hold that understanding, just look at the soul-crushing nightmare that is the destruction and death ravaging Gaza, fueled by the U.S. This genocidal slaughter right now highlights our special role, indeed our responsibility as people living in this country, to oppose the crimes of our own rulers. More has come out that Israel was aware of the Hamas attack plan a year before Hamas killed 1,200 Israelis, as reported by the New York Times. This is on top of evidence that top Israeli commanders diminish the warnings of such plot. And the real public outcry in Israel at Netanyahu for failing to prevent this attack that appears, again, to have been preceded by lots of warning signs. And before we get to the interview, I wanted to recommend reading two things that are linked in the show notes. One is a piece by Paul Street, member of our editorial board, titled, quote, unquote, the only democracy in the Middle East is a fascist state. And it's up on his substack. Give it a read. Let Paul know your thoughts. And if you only have one time to read one thing after listening to this interview, I hope that you'll read the Plus 972 magazine piece by Yuval Abraham titled, A Mass Assassination Factory inside Israel's calculated bombing of Gaza. It details how permissive airstrikes on non-military targets and the use of an artificial intelligence system have enabled the Israeli army to carry out its deadliest war on Gaza. It's an investigation by Plus 972 and Local Call. When you read it, it's almost as if the Israeli government looked at what specifically would be a war crime and said, yeah, let's do that. So go to the show notes, give it a read. With that, Here is my conversation with Dr. Neiman. As of today, when we are recording November 30th, the temporary pause is holding, hopefully. However, thousands of people, including literally thousands of children, are dead in the wake of the Israeli rampage through Gaza. A battle of ideas is playing out against the backdrop of this unprecedented massacre. Ideas like who will be recognized as human and who draws the line of what kind of thought and speech are tolerable. Those who condemn the slaughter of Palestinian children or who call for a ceasefire, who question how the bombing of a hospital could possibly be justified, who believe that never again is not a statement of vengeance, but a pledge to protect all people everywhere from genocide, especially if done in the name 
of protecting the Jewish people all have faced vicious repression, censorship, or even cancellation. That hammer came down hard, came down fast, particularly in places that are known as models of democracy and free inquiry, including the United States, Germany, and Israel itself. As Israel continues to escalate in Gaza and unleashes terror and murder in the West Bank as well, courageous voices of protests by Palestinian and Jewish citizens of Israel are under ferocious assault by both authorities and, and lynch mobs. And this has come into focus, especially earlier this month when Israel's Supreme Court promoted and reified as an institutional pillar of their bastion of enlightenment, sent a chilling and ominous message upholding bans against the protest in Israel. So to delve into this, I am honored to welcome back on the show, Susan Neiman. Susan is the director of the Einstein Forum in Germany. Her latest book is Left is Not Woke. Her first work of fiction, which I'm really excited to read, Nine Stories, a Berlin novel, will be published soon next year. She has written two thought-provoking essays recently for the New York Review of Books. One is Germany on Edge. And that gets into how in recent weeks, Germany's reflexive defense of Israel and suppression of critics have assumed a fever pitch. And historical reckoning gone haywire on Germans' effort to confront their country's criminal history and to root out anti-Semitism have shifted from vigilance to philosemitic McCarthyism that threatens their rich cultural life. And I just got a chance to read Susan's new essay that's up on New Statesman that was published yesterday. The universalist tradition has been forgotten. The Enlightenment portrayed on the Hamas attack, devastating progressive Jews who are not prepared to celebrate the carnage as an act of liberation. Welcome so much. I'm so glad to be talking with you again, Susan. Thank oh, you for so all the writing you've been doing. Yeah, you mentioned two pieces in New York Review. So I wrote the piece which they called Historical Reckoning Con Haywire, which is directly quoted from my piece. I wrote that before the war, but it takes time to publish things. I was trying to describe the general situation in Germany and also talk about the fact that my own book, Learning from the Germans, is in certain ways outdated because what's been happening in Germany for the last three years, also in the U.S. differently, but in Germany, has very much changed my perspective. And I still get letters from people all the time. You know, I loved your book, Learning from the Germans. Can I come to Berlin to work with you? And I have to say, on the condition that you understand that the facts have changed and I've changed my views as well. So I wrote that first piece at the end of the summer. And then, of course, it took time to publish and by the time it came out, the war had already started. So then they asked me if I would write a follow-up, and I did. So that's the order in which they should be read if anybody's interested in reading them. Whoever doesn't get the review can find them on my website. And unfortunately, things have gotten even worse since I wrote the follow-up piece, Germany on the Edge. Germany is quite specific. I mean, I know that there is cancellation going on from both sides in various parts of the world. But Germany, they even call Israel the German raison d'etre. That was a statement that Angela Merkel made at the Knesset in 2008. I was just at a group meeting last night where people were talking about who knows how that expression, which speechwriter, and who knew that it was going to become, you know, this kind of state's doctrine, um, because no one knows what it means. It's a statement of identity. And, you know, there's a sense in which this is what I was talking about in my book, Learning from the Germans, no other country has ever put its historical crime in the middle of its national narrative. And there's something that I respect about that. I mean, given that, you know, Spain, for example, has yet to, first of all, you know, acknowledge uh, its fascism, but also the bloodiest colonial regime in, in history. One has to respect that impulse. But at the same time, what's been happening here in the last few years, and then particularly in the last few weeks, is to use the focus on the German past to allow people to ignore what's going on in the 
Israeli and Palestinian present. And that's not the way to do foreign policy. That's where we are right now. Is there anything in particular that you think people need to be aware of in terms of what what it looks like from where you live in Germany, but with many ties to Israel on how things have shifted even more so within the last, let's say, two months? Well, everything's shifted. I mean, for all of us. I'm an Israeli citizen also. I mean, I have three citizenships. I was born in the States. I made Aliyah after the Oslo Accords when it seemed like having left-wing Jews. I mean, people actually said this. If left-wing American Jews want to actually support the peace process, they should move. And it's not the only reason why I did that, but it's one of the reasons that I did. I think everybody listening to this will know what kinds of hopes we had even after Rabin was assassinated. There was a very strong feeling in the country. I was there at the time, you know, okay, we're doing this for Yitzhak. We're going to carry on the peace process precisely because he was assassinated. And this is sort of, we're going to carry out his legacy. So that was quite strong. And it meant that when Netanyahu was first elected, because everyone in Israel hated Shimon Peres, he had a very good reputation abroad, but I'd never met an Israeli who had anything good to say about Peres. So his, he was vice president, so he automatically became president. Rabin was assassinated, but the next election he lost. And Netanyahu was elected with this very interesting slogan, Shalom Betuach. That's a way of saying peace for sure, but it also plays on the word security. And that was his whole thing. I'm going to bring you peace with security. Now, in the meantime, almost no one in Israeli politics even uses the word peace. But at the time, the wave was so strong that this is what we want, that he at least had to say that he was in favor of security. Uh, you don't need me to rehearse the ways in which the Israeli government has gone far to the right, so that certainly two of the parties in the government, but honestly, also Netanyahu himself, deserve the name fascist. I mean, it's perfectly clear, I assume, to most listeners of this podcast. At the same time, Germany has felt, sometimes genuinely, yeah, we sort of see what's going on with the government, but our loyalty is not to the government, it's to the people of Israel because of our horrendous past. The Jews were our victims, and we were the perpetrators, and now we need to stand by them, whatever. And it's actually a position that's way less critical than anything that Biden has done. And then what you can read in the New York Times, I never thought I would be afraid to quote Tom Friedman. Okay. <laughs> you know, I mean, but he's undergone a transformation. And what he's written in the last weeks has been excellent. And I realized that some of the things he was saying, because I've been giving a lot of talks and interviews in Germany, would cross the line into what's acceptable today. You know, a lot of things are not acceptable. I heard last week from the the State Department here, the word apartheid is not acceptable. You cannot use the word apartheid. And you also cannot invite people who use the word apartheid. And of course, you know, I usually say what I think. And I said, these international human rights organizations, Beit Salem, the Israeli human rights organizations, will you give me an argument why they're wrong. No, it's a red line. It's just taboo. We don't want to talk about arguments. We don't talk about other red lines. So part of the problem is this was the foreign office meeting with representatives of various cultural organizations, including quite a number of Muslims, all of us who are worried about what's sayable without getting all of our funding canceled. And, you know, actually, we were all interested in hearing what are the red lines. And they gave us this one example, but refused to discuss reasons for it. You know, anybody who's spent five minutes in the West Bank knows that at least the arguments about whether it's true for behind the green line or not, those are the arguments. I leave them to the human rights organizations. But if you've spent five minutes in the West Bank, you see that this is a legal term. And it simply means two different uh, systems of law for two different peoples. And it's very clear. 
But we don't know what the other red lines are. Therefore, I found myself refraining from quoting Tom Friedman, you know, the centrist neoliberal of all times. But interestingly enough, this happened today when Henry Kissinger died. I read it in the New York Times first. That was the most hostile obituary I've ever read in my whole life, rightly so. I haven't had time to read everything that's been said, but it sounds to me like the tenor of a lot of American publications is good riddance. But Der Spiegel called him a figure of light. Well, part of what was going on there is that they know that Kissinger was a Jew. So it's not just to criticize an American foreign policy maker, but criticizing a Jew who had that kind of status, clearly not something that they want to do. Huge difference in even mainstream media in the US and in Germany. People are being canceled. If you're in public intellectual life, which I am very intensely in the moment in Germany. You want to walk a line, that means you'll still get heard. So I gave a speech right after this meeting with the Foreign Office. Actually, I wasn't planning to use the word apartheid anyway, because I was talking about other stuff, but I didn't use it. If that's a red flag, which will cause people not to listen to the rest of what I have to say, I can make other formulations. But nevertheless, the two newspapers that reported what I said, which is very carefully written, and I, I checked it out with several people. Interestingly enough, a Palestinian politician here, a Palestinian German politician who looked at the speech. She said, put more emotion in it. You have to show more that you're upset about Hamas. <laughs> I said, okay. Uh, or they won't hear it. You're, you're being too analytic. You know, talk about your children. So that from a Palestinian politician, social democratic politician, because I was speaking to a large gathering of social democratic politicians and members, I thought, okay, I want a basic message to get across. And so one is careful, but everybody's careful right now here. And people are being canceled. Work of a South African, a big exhibit of a South African Jewish artist was just canceled. A prize given to a Black British German writer was just withdrawn because she once signed a letter in support of Palestine, not in support of Hamas, you know, but in support of Palestine. Everything is right now being extremely carefully watched. Whether it's actually private or public funding, most things in most cultural and intellectual institutions in Germany receive public funding. But even things that are privately funded or partly privately funded are basically being watched to see that they don't cross red lines. There's a new bill in parliament that the right-wing party introduced on, I believe it was the 7th of November, the 9th of November, the anniversary of Kristallnacht is always commemorated in the German parliament, and they wanted to rush it through parliament, I don't know, as a gift to Jews for the anniversary of Kristallnacht. It had 51 points of things that should be done, and it had the sinisterly brilliant title, the Resolution for the Protection of Jewish Life in Germany. And as one person said to me, how can I be against anything that's called that? I can't, as a German, be against anything that's called that. So there were 51 points. Only one of them talked about right-wing anti-Semitism, of which there's a lot. There have been murders by far-right groups. There was an attempted coup last year by a far-right group that took 3,000 police officers to arrest and stop. And that was dismissed as a bunch of crazies. And it's true that some of them do seem to support QAnon. But I mean, we saw what happened in the US on January 6th. And these people were better armed and seem to have had better planning than the people on January 6th. 
But what's being discussed is not those people, but the right is using it to say, yes, well, anti-Semitism comes from Muslim immigrants who we let in and we need to keep them out now. Let me just be clear about where I stand. I know that there is anti-Semitism among Muslims. And it's not just anti-Zionism or sympathy for Palestinians. It really does often shade over into anti-Semitism. I don't take most of post-colonial theory Well, I take it seriously, but I don't agree with a great deal of it. But many people have managed to confuse post-colonial theory with anti-colonialism. So the suggestion is, if you don't buy into post-colonial theory, well, then you're an imperialist and you think colonization was a good thing. That's a mistake. The really early anti-colonial movements who succeeded in liberating themselves We're not tribalist. I mean, Franz Fanon today is read as a tribalist. He wasn't. If you go back and look at his texts, he wasn't a global South nationalist. He believed in human emancipation. He was basically a Marxist. And today, people like him or Paul Robeson are read as Black or global South nationalists because, and this is an interesting fact, about today's progressives, using the word socialist, not to mention communist, is really seen as much more politically problematic, dangerous, and taboo, you know, than appealing to a certain kind of tribalism. I happen to have done quite a lot of work on Paul Robeson, who's one of my heroes. And I know that, for example, the museum his last house in Philadelphia, does not use words like socialism and communism. The newer literature on Robeson, there's not so much of it yet. I hope there will be, and I hope there will be better stuff. Sort of excuses, I mean, they acknowledge that he was, you can't know anything about him without knowing that he was at least a fellow traveler and a strong supporter of the Soviet Union. But they excuse that by saying things like, well, the Communist Party was the only party to support the Scottsboro Boys. Um, W.B. Du Bois's uh, NAACP did not support the Scottsboro Boys initially. They thought that was too dangerous. But guess what? Paul Robeson wasn't politicized during the case of the Scottsboro Boys. His political awakening happened in London when he came across a group of striking Welsh miners. That's what got him to be politically active, was a universalist impulse and not a tribalist one. But this is not something we talk about today. I feel like for all that the United States has been going through a racial reckoning, we have yet to do anything like a historical reckoning. And what that means is I think we're even more McCarthyist than we were in the 50s and 60s when any almost anybody knew a communist or at least a socialist and didn't have this sort of immediate association, communist evil gulag. Exactly. Uh, yeah. No, I I appreciate all of that. On this show, as you know, we're digging into what fascism is precisely in order to stop it. And some people argue it doesn't matter what label you use, far right, authoritarian, et cetera, et cetera. And to a certain extent, that's true. We should cooperate with each other to mobilize and stop these forces, regardless of our particular understanding of their worldview and agenda, as long as we agree it's quote unquote bad. But I think What is happening in Gaza is a perfect example of the importance of actually understanding what fascism is. As another former guest of the show, Dr. Jason Stanley recently wrote, quote, some Palestinians have genocidal ambitions against the Jewish inhabitants of Israel, as the actions and words of Hamas and its supporters have made vivid to the world. But this hardly constitutes a justification for Israel's mass killing of innocents to justify mass killing by self-protection, by the claim that its targets pose an existential threat is the classical justification for genocide, end quote. Meanwhile, you have Naftali Bennett, the former prime minister, pointing at Gaza and claiming, quote, they're literally Nazis, end quote, while dropping more bombs in a few weeks on this captive civilian population than Russia has dropped on Ukraine over the course of a couple of years. So 
This label is being thrown around. And I wanted to know, how do you understand the use of the term fascist in this context? And how does it relate to anti-Semitism? Well, we start at one point, basically because of Cold War thinking, which has dominated our times. Many, many people in the world think that fascism is reducible to anti-Semitism. I know Jason Stanley doesn't and a number of other thoughtful people. But in the media, as long as you say you're not anti-Semitic, you are therefore not fascist. And I think it's very important to remember that Nazi ideology had at least two pillars. One was anti-Semitism, of course, but the other was anti-communism. And that was at least as strong and as important to getting members, getting support as anything else. Okay. If you look at the war propaganda, yes, we've all seen the Stormer caricatures of Jews with hooked noses, but there's more of Soviet troops painted or just Soviet people painted as these kind of looming monsters who are coming to, you know, take your wives and children and take you away and ruin your life. We have to start by remembering that. And of course, the problem with being anti-communist, communism for all of its perversions and all the ways in which it was betrayed in many countries was a universalist and not a tribalist movement. And it strove for universal human rights, and including social rights, not just political rights. In fact, social rights were more important than political rights. Of course, it instrumentalized that rhetoric sometimes. We all know about that. But basically, what you had was a universalist, anti-racist movement, officially, not always in practice. And that was the target of fascism, any form of claims about universal human rights and dignity being the same for every people on earth. Omer Bartov, who's perhaps the most famous historian of genocide in the world now, I'll stick to his determination, which he wrote both in the New York Times and in Der Spiegel in Germany. These are genocidal tendencies on the part of the Israeli army it's not yet a genocide, but these are the ways in which genocide starts. And there's another friend of mine who you want to interview, but I'll tell you about that later on the subject, says, you know, if we wait until they build concentration camps to use the word fascism, it's already too late to avoid it. And I think that's absolutely right. I've been quoting him for a while. It's not just that Bennett called Palestinians Nazis. It's that Netanyahu has been making references to Amalek, as of course his ministers are. And that's why I wrote that little piece for the New Statesman, asked a bunch of people, what does it mean to be a leftist Jew today? And I wrote that these two very different strains in the Jewish tradition that go back to the Bible. One is a universalist tradition that says, we were strangers in Egypt, therefore we have an obligation to take care of the stranger. Now that happens 36 times in the Bible, which is interesting. Three times in the Bible, there's a mention of this trial Amalek. And the tribe Amalek, as we were wandering through the desert, I always say we, uh, this is, comes from childhood, you know, satyrs, you feel bound to say we and not they. As we were wandering through the desert and weak, this tribe Amalek came and tried to kill all of us, including the women and children. And therefore, this tribe should be wiped out down to the last child. When the Israeli head of state says that, it's pretty scary. So basically, I'm agreeing with Jason Stanley, there's genocidal intent, not just behavior, but genocidal intent on both sides. And it seems to me that the only decent thing that any Jewish leftist or any leftist at all can do today is to say, we need to be able to keep two things in our heads at the same time and not try to weigh them and not try to say, you know, this was worse than that, or this started there. Oh, no, it started back then. Not the point right now. There are two different forms of evil. And one of them was committed on October 7th. And the other is happening right now. Well, right now, as you said, 
there's a ceasefire, but I don't know anybody who thinks it's going to hold. It's a pause. And I'm all for pauses. I'm not against a pause. Hours that children aren't being killed. Read interviews with people in Gaza saying, you know, uh, finally I can go to sleep at night without being afraid of being killed. So I don't want to diminish that, but I also don't want people to have any illusions that this is a lasting peace, if you will. Of course it's not. And there is never going to be a lasting peace with this government. And that is now the dilemma. I then asked Susan to comment on resistance in Germany and universalism versus tribalism, two key themes in her recent essays. I think I started to say we have a bill right now in front of parliament that was brought by the right. In the form that it was brought, fortunately, it doesn't seem like it's going to be passed. Wiser heads prevailed. I was in parliament yesterday with a small delegation of friends I've been working with, Jewish and non-Jewish, in Germany to try and explain our problems with the resolution, first of all, because conflicts with the Constitution and freedom of speech. I was actually asked last week by a journalist, he said, well, when you invite people to the Einstein Forum, do you Google the name plus BDS? (laughs) Because a lot of people are doing that. And I said, no, but I wouldn't invite anybody who conflicted with the values of Albert Einstein. Interestingly enough, most people don't know what those values were. He was a very committed social democrat, anti-racist civil rights worker, even before he came to the United States and uh, opponent of McCarthyism until he died. And when I say opponent, I don't mean he just said this. I mean, he spent more of the second half of his life being a public intellectual, giving money, raising money, telling people during the McCarthy period they should not appear before the HUAC, even if it cost them their jobs, but then help them find jobs. He was right on that. But even for quoting Einstein last week, I got in trouble because there was something very sharp that he said about if the Jews can't come to a fair understanding with the Arabs, then we haven't learned anything from our 2,000-year history of suffering. Then he said, and we shouldn't be surprised at whatever comes to us. And that, of course, was taken by a newspaper as I was saying, Israel deserved Hamas. I was not saying that, of course, okay? And I should say right here that one of my daughters was had been planning to go to Israel. She is still very tied to the place, speaks perfect Hebrew, But for different reasons, she decided to postpone her trip. But it took me till about October 9th to realize if she had been there, she would have been at the rave. If she'd been in the country, she she likes raves. She goes to Burning Man, you know, called her and said, yeah. She said, of course, that's a world famous rave. Of course, I always wanted to go there. It did not actually hit me directly, but it could have. So I don't see any way of justifying what Hamas did. But at the same time, we need to be able to hold two truths in our head at once. Not only is the current policy atrocious and committing war crimes in Gaza, but it's not doing anything for Israel's security. That is, if you read Haaretz or something similar, you see that what people think was also destroyed on October 7th was the whole security policy that Netanyahu has built up over the past 20 years. So we've been trying to convince parliament, a number of people, you know, there's lobbying going on. I don't think the worst form of the censorship, which would have required everyone in German public cultural life to commit to the IRA definition of anti-Semitism, <laughs> uh, I don't think that's going to pass. But I'm not even sure of that at this moment. It's it's scary. What was the second question again? The second question was about the theme that you had gotten into in your piece about Jewish universalism being the answer to Jewish nationalism, and that universalism means as many people are asking what it would take to ensure the safety of Jews in a time when Israel is carrying out these atrocities. So look, one of the biggest problems about Israel is not just the atrocities against the Palestinians, it's that they have allied with all the wrong people for about 20 years. And there's fury at the state of Israel internationally because of that. 
And one doesn't dare say it, but I will say to an American audience, because Tony Judd said it, my late friend who died much too early, he got death threats for this. He said, look, anti-Semitism is rising because of Israeli policies. It's just true. And while we all know it's false to identify every Jew with the state of Israel, that's what Israel does. What we have is a conception of Judaism that has been not just more and more tribalist or nationalist, but also more and more so-called realpolitik, more and more so-called, yeah, we're just going to pay attention to our interests and we're not going to think about values or rights or ethics or anything. And that's been the way that things have been going. And by the way, tribalism, this is what I wrote in my book, Left is Not Woke, tribalism and the idea that really all you need to pay attention to are interests and power, those things go together. If you're a universalist, you care about everybody's human rights. But we have this great Jewish tradition that starts in the book of Exodus about because we were strangers, we need to be on the side of people who are discriminated against, people who are strange, people who are enslaved. The funny thing is, I know everybody thinks I grew up on the Upper West Side. I did not. I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, and there was a lot of anti-Semitism. The last Jew was lynched long before I was born, but it was in living memory. It affected everybody. Jews were certainly treated better than African-Americans, but it was always sort of iffy. For that reason, most of the Jewish community was very scared to put itself on the side of the civil rights movement. Northern Jews came down during the civil rights movement, but the Southern Jewish community was quite scared. The synagogue called the Temple was bombed in 1958 because the rabbi, put himself on the side of Martin Luther King way before King was famous and had a Nobel Prize or anything like that. And it was clearly a warning saying, stay in your lane, don't get involved in the civil rights stuff. We know what happened at the Tree of Life synagogue. It's the synagogues that actually are universalist, that stand up for other people's rights and that the right quite correctly sees is a threat to the nationalism that they want. Maybe I'll end because this is something that does give me hope. On January 6th, I was in Berlin and I had seen, I think, John Ossoff won first and Raphael Warnock the next day. And I called up an American friend and I said, hey, I bought champagne in November, but I didn't want to drink it until I saw whether the Democrats hold the Senate. But I just put it in the fridge. You want to come over and celebrate? Because I knew that Trump voters were prepared for violence. I didn't know, nobody did, to what extent that that had been planned. That actually didn't surprise me. What surprised me as somebody coming from Georgia was that a Jewish man and a black man could actually win Georgia for the Senate and thereby save the Senate. Now, the interesting thing is John Ossoff swore his oath to the Senate on the Bible of this rabbi, Jacob Rothschild, who was close to Dr. King. And of course, Raphael Warnock comes from Ebenezer Baptist Church, which was King's church. And the two communities have had this connection since those days. And they fought together. They fought for the civil rights movement together. But Ossoff and Warnock fought together. They ran a joint race for the Senate. I just think that's the kind of universalism that could save us from tribalism and occasionally does win some victories. Then, of course, as I was drinking champagne with my friend, people started texting me, Susan, turn on the television. Do you know what's happening here? And I said, you know, I don't care. In a way, of course, I care. But I guess I think we need to celebrate every step forward that we can. And there are people in Jewish and Muslim communities in Israel, in the US, and even beginning in Germany, at least in Berlin, who are saying, which is the largest Palestinian diaspora community in Europe, we need to stand together. We need to show them that there is a universalist ethos. Of course, compatible with cultural differences, no problem with that. Universalism doesn't mean that everybody's the same and there's only one culture or that culture belongs to particular people. 
But we need to show people that this can work. We need to protect each other. It's very fragile. People are still very raw. And I understand it because I heard last night before the pause, there was a rate of one child in Gaza being killed every 10 minutes. So it's very urgent. It's very fragile. But there are people across tribes who are working together. And that's where I get my inspiration. In the show notes, we're going to link to your website, along with your recent works on this topic, along with your most recent book. And I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to share your expertise, your perspective, and your time with us. Pleasure to talk to you, Sam. Thank you so much. Cheers to all who are in the streets to say stop the U.S.-backed Israeli genocidal war against Palestine and love to all the artists, musicians, authors, academics, students, and others who are working to stop the repression, censorship, and blacklisting of pro-Palestinian voices. Thanks to listening to Refuse Fascism. Got thoughts or questions off this episode? I bet you do. We want to hear them. Ideas for topics or guests? Yes, please send them to us. Have a skill you think could help? We want to know all about it. Reach me at the site, previously known as Twitter, at Sam B. Goldman. Drop me a line at Samantha Goldman at refusefascism.org. Find us on Mastodon, Threads, Blue Sky, Instagram at refusefascism. Or leave us a voicemail. We'd love to hear from you. See the show notes for a button. If you want to support the show, it's simple. Show us some love by rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts or your listening platform of choice. And of course, follow, subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also literally put Refuse Fascism on your forehead to let people know about the show, get the conversation going. We have a Refuse Fascism beanie. It's black with some white lettering that says Refuse Fascism. When you make a gift of $35 or more to Refuse Fascism this month, it's December, you'll get... Two, one for you and one for a loved one, as long as you provide a shipping address. Interested? Great. Go to refusefascism.org and hit the donate button. We hope you'll consider, if you're not already, becoming a patron to support our pod and content creation to help people understand and act to stop the fascist threat. We have no sponsors and count on you. Whether you can give $2 or $20 a month, it all makes a difference in producing and promoting this independent weekly podcast. Give today at patreon.com slash refusefascism or by visiting refusefascism.org and hitting the donate button, selecting recurring donation to make it monthly. Thanks in advance for your support. And thanks to Richie Marini, Lena Thorne, and Mark Tinkleman for helping produce this episode. Thanks to incredible volunteers, we have transcripts available for each show. So be sure to visit refusefascism.org and sign up to get them in your inbox. Until next Sunday, in the name of humanity, we refuse to accept a fascist America.